welcome to Something Different This Way Comes. This season I'm imagining the kindness economy. And this episode's a bit of a rant and a ramble. A wander around my thoughts and references when it comes to those two words, kindness and economy. Something different, this way comes something Something different, something different Something different, this way comes something Something different, something different So I started the season with a a contemplation of the stories we tell and how we hear them and and understand them and, and build on our understandings. The way we learn and, and teach one another. And I imagined the opportunity to do that better as a culture, community. What might that look like? That was episode one. And in episode two, I dug into food. And essential that holds such opportunity to, to do better, to grow and, and manage and, and share it with more kindness for ourselves and for our environment. That was episode two. Three and four, I, I luxuriated in two beautiful and edifying conversations with, with great women, good company who generously and bravely shared their expertise, their perspective, their ideas, imagining the kindness economy with me. I have more such decadent, delightful conversations to come. One of them's already recorded. You'll get those episodes soon, this season. But today, today, I want to dig in again to economy and kindness. And I want to start with culture. So I I listened to this podcast called The Hidden Brain. It's about psychology and culture. And the conversation that comes to mind first off to start today's episode was with the psychologist Ryan Brown, whose area of expertise is something called honor culture. So an honor culture has a few flags so you can recognize it as such. And he studies what those flags are and, and how they play out, what their impact is. Basically, an honor culture is one that's kind of exclusionary. It's a culture that's based on fundamental insecurities in our value to one another. It's, it's a culture that really values your reputation above all else. That's the most valuable thing you have is your reputation, how you are seen by others. And, and this culture tends to seek walls. It tends to be wary of strangers. It tends to divide the world into us and them. You extend your honor to those that are yours and those that are them. You have very little compassion for or empathy towards. You other them. He says some of the flags to help us recognize an honor culture would be how sensitive people are to their reputation, to the markings of social value, of of being high status, of there being many levels of status, of there being an acceptance of grouping up to include and then exclude people, not only an acceptance but a valuing of that. Homelessness and hunger, right next to wasted food and empty, heated, perfectly serviceable spaces, that would be a flag. This is an honor society. Sometimes people are excluded, not valued by all, because they're not us, they're them. Bar fights that start with an unintended slight and then escalate into violence, that would be a flag. You know, honor, honor was challenged. And you can't stop the escalation once you're defending that honor. On the other dark side of that, suicide is a flag of an honor society. Suicide by those who who feel they've become a burden, that they can't win, that they are losers, that they 
might be about to lose something unimaginable like their status, or they might never manage to gain it. So thinking about this today, trying to decide where to start in, in this rant and ramble I, I have for you, um, and it's time to stop for the moment. It's time to go start breakfast. Uh, so I put on my headphones, I, I find a playlist, and I, I start listening. And the second song to come up is this song. I don't actually know it. don't remember hearing it before. But I recognize it immediately as Neil Young. featuring the psychologist Amit Kumar. Don't worry, I'll put links to all of these in the landing page for this episode if you want to listen to them. And, and I recommend them. They're excellent. So Amit Kumar, his area of focus is kindness. He studies, I forget the words he used, but he, he calls it a paradox. The unreasonable, the extreme anxiety and emotional um, expense that gets provoked when we have an, an opportunity to be kind. He studies this. Like, I'll give an example. Like, if you have uh, cupcakes at work, and you have an extra one, and you can immediately think of lots of people that you like, you'd be happy to give a cupcake to, and yet you're awash with this insecurity, all these crazy questions like, what will they think of me? How will it be received? Might they think ill of me? And how could it possibly go wrong? And, and it's, it's, it takes a lot of courage to kind of muscle through this illogical, extreme, emotional resistance to being kind. And then when you do it, it feels good. I mean, it feels really great. Until your mind starts digging in there again and saying, oh, you know, how did they really think of that? I bet you it kind of irritated them. And, and you start to minimize it. But in that moment of giving, it feels, it feels great. And the other side of it, the person who's just doing their day and somebody they like, they know around the office, shows up and, and offers them a cupcake. It is hard to overstate how good that feels. The person receiving the cupcake is so lifted up by it. He talks for an hour in this podcast about this kindness conundrum that it's very easy for us to do, logically speaking, and yet it's so extremely hard for us to do in actual fact. Our brains try to try to talk us out of it. And they don't do it logically. They might throw some words in there to explain it, but it's really a wash of emotions that deter us from being courageous enough to be kind. And the other thing that makes me think of, actually, is other things I've listened to as an armchair psychologist. I mean, I have to admit, this is not my area of expertise, right? So take all of this with a grain of salt. Feel inspired to go listen from people who actually know what they're talking about. But from what I've read, I get the impression that our brains are also really, really fond of habit. And they defend them in a similar way, like with this wash of emotion that just tries to shut us down and keep us from doing something that's actually very doable, really easy, and might feel great. Um, like I think, for instance, of a few years ago, everywhere you were hearing about this dude who was saying, you can change habits, you can gain good habits, you have to put some effort into it. You know, just deciding one day to exercise every day might work for a while, but the odds are really good you won't stick with it. That's why New Year's resolutions are so hard to hold to, right? 
So his solution was, I think the example was, you know, start flossing when you've never gotten around to flossing by only making yourself floss one a day. And then he had a few other like little tricks, right? set clear goals and give yourself a reward when you get to it. Um, give yourself prompts and, and make it part of a habit so that you're building a habit on top. Like, oh my goodness, talk about an illustration of how fiercely our brains cling to habits and how hard it is to break out of a plan. You know, I, I, I know I can't take my usual route to work. I know there's construction and yet somehow it's hard not to take my old route to work. You know, we, we get rigid. We love rigidity. And, and honestly, I don't think we could do all that we do without habits. I think that's how our brain processes as much as it does and, and multitasks as much as it actually does. I mean, I'm not dissing habits. I'm not. I'm just respecting them and thinking about them in the context of needing substantive change quickly, wanting to do things that are logical, that have great arguments behind them, and, and having to be kind in the face of resistance, our own and those of others. Some see life as hope eternal, some see life as business plan, some wish some would go to hell's infernal, but screwing with the life in freedom land, it's an angry world for the businessman and the fisherman, it's an Sorry if I butchered that for you because it's so different from his version. My little acoustic take, I just picked it up this morning because it, it so fits what I think of when I worry about how hard it is to change. When I worry about how much resistance we give ourselves to acts of kindness. I want to go back to Ryan Brown, the psychologist that I heard on the podcast Hidden Brain. He's an specialist in honor culture and says that that really boils down to putting defense of reputation at the heart of, of the life of a community, of the values of a culture. And that leads to wanting to control things. And it also leads to insecurity, because you could always fall outside of whatever circle you're inside. You could be excluded. You could lose your value to your community. And I think that's really expensive. And I want to fix it. So Ryan Brown did mention, although more in passing, because it's not his focus, he said the opposite of an honor culture is something he called a dignity culture. And he said the core of a dignity culture is that every citizen has inherent worth. You can't lose your value to your community. You're not ranked or rated as a value, as a person. It doesn't matter if you're giving a lot at this time in your life. You can be generous. You, you, you have many skills and much strength and much time. and That doesn't make you more valuable than somebody at a time of need, who has great vulnerability, who needs to be supported and cared for at this time. You have different roles in your community, but you have equal value. That would be a dignity culture. And really, to me, that's, that's what I'm asking about, is how do we get to more of a kindness economy? Because it's not that we don't have it, right? If I think of a family in which no matter what you do, you know, you, you might get pushback, you might have consequences, but you can't ever fall out of the loving heart of your family. You were always included. You were always cared about. And the family does not, you know, decide that they are successful because one among them is doing well. And the success of the family is totally tied to the, to the success of all. We all need to be okay. We know families like that. We know communities like that. Communities that you can let down, you can leave, but you never really leave. 
You were always included in this community. You were always loved and offered support whenever you're willing to accept that kindness. You know, it's hard work being kind and offering dignity to everyone. It's messy. It's not controlled. It involves a lot of forgiveness and trusting and and letting go. But it's good. I think the kindness economy is, is good, but messy. So the kindness economy. I mean, we are entrenched in powerful habits that are rooted in our honor culture. And we are bedeviled by our brain's paradoxical fear of kindness and other good things that we want more of. So how can we accomplish the kindness economy? That's what I want to think about. I have thoughts. I spent this season mostly just jumping over how to imagine the goal of a kindness economy, what the point is, what what the destination is we want to reach for and drive towards. But today, today I'm going to step back a bit and, and think about these, these obstacles, the, the obstacle of tending to avoid opportunities to be kind. It's strong. It's emotional. And if we understood it better, talked about it more, it's very overcomable. And being kind, receiving kindness, is never going to be easy, I don't think. That's what I conclude from listening to this this dude. I mean, but it gets easier if everybody around you is trying to do the same and and if that becomes part of our culture. And with practice. I think about Cindy Crow in our conversation a couple weeks ago, asking for respect for whoever you bump into in your life. Just give them the dignity and respect of looking at them as a fellow equal human being and offering a little kindness whenever you get a chance. You know, do not turn your back from something you didn't see coming and clearly can understand to be a plea for for kindness. You know, I was a busker in university. Um, I played music on the street for passing cash. And the hardest part of that job was the people who would judge me for doing this homeless work people that would just shuffle by not make eye contact and not choose to be kind enough to put some money in or even just smile and thank me for the song and that was the hardest part of that job I think a big part of helping us be kind is empathy is imagining ourselves at the other side of that opportunity and what we would love to see from that passing stranger So that's all kind of theoretical. I think it gets to the heart of things, but but it's sort of theoretical. And I do have some really practical thoughts, some really pragmatic ideas on how we can unlock our economy so it's kinder and more economical in that it's more efficient. It does better, more easily, and less expensively what we ask of it, which is to work you know, to to allow us to specialize and and share and collaborate and solve problems, including everybody being fed and housed and, you know, the climate crisis. There's a few things to solve. I have some thoughts on how to do that. But first, but first, I want to thank you for listening. Something Different This Way Comes is, is very, very, very independent. I have. I have some sponsors, and, and they're people who choose to listen. And as listeners to, to donate a little money through GoFundMe, I have a button to it on our website because uh, they appreciate the time I put into this. They enjoy the company. Maybe it's an entertainment. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a segue to other things they'd like to listen to because we shared the same tastes and podcasts and books and documentaries and movies so maybe they donate a bit because they love to go to www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes and check out my library of hope on the main page with all the things I've referenced over the many seasons so far but those are the only sponsors I have 
to speak for myself. It's, uh, I'm wholly accountable for the accuracy and, and the intention of this work. And I'm so glad you're listening. If you do go to the website, too, I, uh, I want to give a tribute to Leah McKay, who designed that website and designed also the ad and the walleye this month. She's, uh, she's given so much to this program with her skills. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something So now let's get into it. Part two. I'm going to call this good and messy. Here's some of the things that, that keep coming up as I think part of the solution here, part of the way to get to a kinder economy that's more economic, you know, that works more efficiently. I'm going to start with universal basic income, something we all got a taste of with Serbs. Although here in Thunder Bay, we also had it as a trial run for a while um, before it was shut down with a new election. And I've heard such moving testaments from people who benefited from it, who'd been on other income replacement programs that had a lot more rules and controls that often tripped them up and made them feel constrained and also judged and how much kinder they found the universal basic income as a way to meet their basic needs. Serbs was huge, though, because it, it, it had no huge study beforehand, not a bunch of prep time, not a bunch of committees called and, and, and decisions weighed. It was like, what can we do? Let's make it happen fast. And if you look at the Stats Canada report of how many Canadians benefited and, and how much more and easily it helped the most vulnerable not the very most vulnerable, but many economically vulnerable people when we needed it most in a crisis. It's really wonderful. It's really wonderful. You can get thrown away by the numbers, billions of dollars spent. Um, and there has been a lot of coverage over a recent release from the CRA, looking at 5% of those who received SERBs that they thought maybe didn't qualify. And they, they named them as high risk, which in itself is interesting. I don't know what made them name them as high risk, but, you know, reading over some of the conversation around it and some of the stats that are released, I think the thinking is that what limitations they put on people getting Serbs um, were mostly the problem. So there would be people on other forms of, of income assistance. And then only after they had said, oh, my goodness, serves us a little more. I could really do it a little more. And then one of them gets clawed back, and they're put in a really rough position. I know that was some of the cases. There were other cases that I think are more related to another of my um, concerns, which is Canada's management of our personal information, how they silo it, which makes us vulnerable instead of taking over and really taking responsibility for it like Estonia, which I've talked about in the past, I won't hear. But at any rate, apparently a few hundred dead people's social insurance numbers and, and personal information were used for people to collect Serbs in their names, which, you know, it was a very, very small percentage of the claims, and I think is an indication of weaknesses on the government side more than, you know, the, the risk to the program of this. Because as far as risk goes, I think Serbs was an, was an example of if you keep it simple, so that you trust people and they say, I need this income. And then only afterwards do they have to file all the details and risk you deciding that you didn't really need it. So now you need to give it back. You will have a few cases where people might disagree and think that they didn't really need it. Um, but I think that outweighs the benefit of making it simple and trusting people. I think universal basic income, which, you know, I don't know enough about. I know there's lots of experts out there. I just keep coming back to it as a way to, to simplify things and make sure we're all okay. My bugaboo on that is, if we don't also address the housing insecurity, the health care insecurity, and the food insecurity issues in Canada, just setting a basic income up risks that not keeping up with actually what you need to cover your basic needs, what you need in income, which has been a reoccurring theme when we when we created all these other income replacement 
programs, WSIB, welfare, whatever, and then we don't increase them as the cost of things go up or we we don't have enough flexibility to adapt to um, different basic needs in different parts of the country, different times for different people, you start failing to meet uh, those basic needs and instead adding obstacles to people getting that help when they need it because it gets complicated, right? And one of the other interesting things is how little the cost of administering that program was, relatively speaking, compared to all those other full of only for this person and only this case and really focused on who needs it most, prioritized kind of administrative burden on other income replacement programs we've had. SERPs was pretty darn easy to run, relatively speaking, and those savings are enormous. So if it could replace other things that are not sufficiently meeting the needs of people who need it right now, that are way overdue for an overhaul and an update, if instead we could increase the supports available to all, decrease the obstacles in their way, and provide a basic income without much question to those who say they need it, I think that would just open up so much security. And I think it would help mental health, honestly. I think insecurity is a real strain. It's going to trigger mental health. And don't take my word on it, but I think that's worth worth looking at and considering. There's two other parts to this that I think would really make a difference. And one is justice. The justice system is very expensive. And if its goal is to restore people who have broken the law back into a place in society and discourage them from making that mistake again, breaking the law again. And it doesn't do that well. It's a very, very expensive system that doesn't do that very well. So I was reading an article recently in the Washington Post that was introducing to Americans trying to explain how Danes do their penal system, how they manage their justice system, when the focus really is on restoring people to health, reintegrating them with society, and really effectively addressing their needs so that they don't reoffend and healing the harm that they caused, which we don't do right now. We don't really take care of victims of crime much, except tell them, throw all your money at trying to get this guy punished. So there's a huge area, and again, not a place I have any great expertise in, but I think if we could do that differently, we could unlock a lot of people that are working in that field with a lot of insight and skills that we could use in the healing and in the organizing and the, and the administration of, of other things that we really need, like those food systems and the and the rehousing of everybody. And, and talking about rehousing, again, we talk a lot about building lots more houses, but I believe we don't talk enough about other ways to give people secure housing. I mean, I've been watching Studio Ghibli movies with Sam, in which all these Japanese families you know, work their butts off in one space, and then come night, they just clean the floor, open a cupboard, roll out a mat, and they all sleep in the same space, which makes you look very differently at all the buildings that are empty at night with homeless people outside of them in our cities across Canada. There's also, though, you know, multi-generation families living in a house together. I just this week listened to um, the Walrus Talks. This one was in collaboration with Concordia University, my alma mater, they have a program called Next Gen Cities. They put a one-hour program together with several speakers, and one of whom, this, this tall gentleman, I forget what country his family is rooted in. He's, he's you know, born and raised Canadian. But in the country that his family comes from, everybody lived in apartments, so very dense urban homes, and there was a lot of room for entrepreneurship so that you could really have that 15-minute city people talk about. And also, you could kind of adapt your apartments as your needs changed. And a big part of that was ensuring that people could age at home because it was multi-generational. So the matriarch and patriarch's needs would change over time, but there was never a distance between them and those that loved them and could could help them in a very, you know, I know you deeply, I can support you gently and easily sort of a way. And he spoke passionately, he's a developer in Toronto, about his vision for making that easier to do as we invest in new housing infrastructure in our cities. And another wonderful uh, presentation in that same one-hour piece was by a young woman who urban farms. It reminded me of Erin Beagle in Roots to Harvest, this incredible, incredibly gifted and a sincere speaker who has also been really gifted and sincere in, in looking at innovative ways 
to provide solutions and leverage resources. And the resources she leverages are the ingenuity and commitment of people who want to grow food, want to be in charge of their own days. Um, yeah. And also the interest and the support people have in, in buying from local entrepreneurs and, and buying local food. She was inspiring and uh, just makes me think that there's more than one way to do what needs to be get done. And the more we get out of the way of people with ideas and energy and inspiration, the more powerful that will be. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. Profit the children, profit the land, profit the justice you hold in your hand. Profit peace, beauty and joy. Profit the children, profit the land. <laughs> that is a song. I wrote over two decades ago. And I've gotten new verses for you for today's show, but the chorus still holds. I think the chorus still holds. But thinking of that young farmer, that young innovative entrepreneur uh, in Toronto, makes me think about information too, about another important resource with walls that we would benefit from reviewing and, and likely taking down. And that's learning and education. She talked about the power and impact of people collaborating, sharing information and best habits, kind of informally mentoring each other, sharing resources like tools or vehicles. And then that reminded me of Green Wave. I've talked a lot about um, Bren Smith. He's the Newfoundland-raised uh, American who now kelp farms on the um, Atlantic coast and is also the figurehead, the, the front of this not-for-profit organization that's really looking at kelp farming, which not only raises seaweed you can eat and use for fertilizer, but also shellfish and cleans the ocean and, and captures carbon and helps clean our air. It's a really great initiative. And what they're doing is empowering many people to have small operations, and, but also to commit to working collaboratively and sharing information and being a good community member, which is this reoccurring theme, the power of, of people collaborating and of learning throughout your life. If ever there was a time to empower us to learn, this would be it. And this makes me think of dinosaurs. When I was a kid, when I was very little, when we lived in Calgary, I was in love with dinosaurs. They were painted all over the place at the, at the Calgary Zoo, which was a place I used to go to fairly often. And so I got very proud of being able to tell you details about the dinosaur pictures I saw there. And then, you know, 10 years later, when my little brother was the age that I was back then, he got into dinosaurs. And we had a book at the house that, that was all about the science of dinosaurs. And I had to read it to him over and over and over and over again. And he loved it. And then another 20 years after that, I have two little boys at home. And they get interested in dinosaurs. And we pick up a few books. And we watch a few documentaries. And, and then I find that same book I used to read to my little brother. Uh, years earlier, and I pick it up at a used bookstore, so happy to share it with my kids. And I sit down to read it to them, and I'm enjoying it, and they're getting more and more upset at me because it's wrong. The science of dinosaurs has changed. We've learned so much in those 20 years when I wasn't paying attention to dinosaurs. And I'd kind of heard about it. You know, I listened to Quirks and Quarks, and I'd been reading those other books with the current information to the boys, and yet it somehow hadn't sunk in how much things had changed. So I think right now when we're trying to build on good science and, and really imagine transformations, maximizing the opportunities and minimizing the obstacles to all of us getting a chance to learn anew would be a very powerful way to open our economy, really, to get past those moments of dread where you're being asked to change a habit or a perception or a plan or a dream you know, you're just trying to get through that wash of, of fear, that paradox of emotion. I think good information is really helpful. Profit the children, profit the land. Such capacity everywhere. Trust a stranger, dare to play fair. Drop defenses, open the gates. 
Welcome every hen before it's too late. Because <laughs> that is part of the capital I want to unlock. I feel like there's a potential for, for many of us who feel like we can't do things to regain our welcome and our courage to contribute a, a little bit more. I feel like we've lost a lot of people. It's not just my, my children who get such satisfaction out of the imaginary work they do online that, that is so rewarding of their efforts and clear and honest and kind, as opposed to the harder to understand and not so necessarily kind and harder to even access world of work outside the computer screen. I think there would be many, many hands, and we could do with hands right now if we change some fundamental things. But let's talk about unlocking capital, like the actual unlocking of cash. If we want more entrepreneurs, young people with good ideas and the right skills out there making change in an innovative and, and valuable way, one giant obstacle is capital starting a business require and assume that you're going to have what we call skin in the game. If you have a house and you've had it long enough that you've paid down the mortgage and, and a good chunk of the value of that house is considered to be owned by you, that can allow you to start a business. You can borrow that again, a second mortgage, to start a business. If you're younger, the odds that you have sufficient capital to qualify for all the loans and all the financing out there that's supposed to encourage women and immigrants and, and younger people to start businesses, they require teeth in the game. And I think we should let go of that. I do. If people come with a really solid plan and all they need is the capital startup cost, I think we can leverage that plan and that commitment to get the job done and risk loaning them all that they need. This is a prototype that's been tested for the last many decades in microloans in some circles in Canada, but certainly internationally in areas where very few people have capital and usually empowering women so they can provide a service that they have the skills and the, and the energy and the insight to provide to their community. And all they need is a bit of capital. You know, maybe it's to buy their first stock and set up a little store so their neighborhood has milk in the middle of the night if the babies need it or whatever it is. So unlocking capital by, uh, especially for younger people, offering them unsecured loans, especially if they wish to start micro-businesses, because that's the other place, that's the other hole in our business. Micro-businesses in Canada's lexicon is a business with less than 10 employees. And if you think of all the local businesses you love, most of them have less than 10 employees, right? It's, it's somebody, maybe their family, maybe a couple of, of key employees, a few, and they're providing a service you value in a way that's tailored to your community. And they're not doing it to get rich. They're doing it because they'd rather be in charge of their own fates and running their own lives than being an employee and following somebody else's dream. And they're doing it because they really get a kick out of, of meeting the needs of their community. And they're usually doing it at no profit right now. Because if you wait until you have enough capital here, there, everywhere to, to be able to qualify to uh, borrow the balance and start up a business, um, and then you, and you power through competing with multinationals that have very different uh, scale costs than yours, odds are really good that you're never going to really make up for that initial outlay of capital. It would have been quietly compounding in the meantime as you get started and become profitable. And then once you're profitable, you have to set aside so much more in order to make up for that capital's compounding growth that you missed out on. Most don't. And that's why you see so many small businesses that struggle to find a way to pass on their business and keep it running when they retire or work past when they want to retire because they can't afford to do so. So that would be another sector where if somebody has a really good idea of, of what would be valuable to their community and we as communities have a really good idea of, of what we'd like to have and would value, why not give unsecured loans and allow those businesses to give it a go? I think the risk is there, but it is worth the benefit of broadening that opportunity. And the third part that I think would really unlock that potential capital, people capital as well as cash capital, is uh, 
really investing in what are the tripping hazards for small businesses. Often it's they have to wear so many hats, and right now we're, we're pretty specialized in things like human resources, payroll management, long-term financing. They have to wear all those hats. And if we could find things that we could simplify, um, you know, programs that kind of do the math for you and help you keep your prices current as costs change so you don't have to wait until six months later when you get a chance to sit down and crunch the numbers and realize you've been losing money on this time and then really fret over how you tell your clients that your prices have to go up. I think that would make a huge, huge difference. And then the other thing, the other really big business thing that would unlock capital is one that Seth Klein digs into really deeply in his book, A Good War. He looks at the Second World War, and, and, and amazing things happen in our economy, incredible transformations. Many of the large businesses completely changed what they were doing in very short order. And, and one thing I didn't know is that it was mandated federally that Canadian businesses could only earn so much profit until the war was over. And anything they earned above that, they had to give back as taxes, Right? I didn't know that. That's pretty extreme. I, I, I didn't even know you could do something like that, but they did. And it really helped finance this huge push to win a difficult war and be a, a player on a much bigger stage than Canada had ever tried to be competitive at before. So tricks like that, that could make business understand clearly the goals that we're trying to meet, give them a timeline, raise expectations, and give them the opportunity to deliver on those expectations. I think that would be very powerful. I think policy is really important. And policy is up to the people to demand as much as the leaders to dream up and provide. I've said this before, but leaders are followers. And the sad thing is that they, they have to hear from a lot of people that are not their inner circle before they, they believe us and are willing to risk that because it's outside of their familiar habits and stories and expectations. And we've been talking about how hard it is to change your plan. But in fact, their job is to do what we tell them to do. And so we can raise expectations. If we fail to, we will fail to realize higher expectations. So I feel like raising expectations would be a really powerful way to uh, help make this happen fast. We're changing the culture just by saying, you need to do this. Figure out how to do this. I have faith in you. On the goal. Set the stage. Saving the world takes more than a living wage. Expectations, raise them high. Build the future that calls you and I. Build the future that calls you and I. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. <laughs> so the last piece I really want to talk about is communication. I've had the pleasure through this podcast of these wonderful conversations that teach me so much, that open my heart, that, that, that feed my imagination and my hope. And I feel like if we could do more of that, if we could find ways to, to give people permission to, instead of having conversations that, that build commonality around condemnation, you know, shake your head kind of conversations, have you heard? And, and figure out where to build spaces where we feel safe enough and dare to collaborate and share our ideas and own them as goals. I got really excited this week. I, I learned about Ireland's citizens' assemblies. Apparently, this was how Ireland, this really conservative, really Catholic country, managed to make abortion legal. Out of the blue, it seemed to happen, right? There was a, a big referendum, but it was passed, and there hasn't been much of a pushback since then. What, what was the magic? Well, starting a few years ago, I mean, this has not been going on for generations, they decided to create these citizens' assemblies. So they'll, they'll pick a topic. The one that led to the abortion changes was women's equality. And the one they're doing right now is um, illegal drugs and drugs and addiction. So they pick a topic. And then they randomly send out invitations to all Irish people. Initially, it was just 
people that, you know, were voting citizens. Now you have to be 18 and older, but otherwise they include people out in the diaspora, Irish people that, that live outside of Ireland. They include uh, landed citizens. Anybody who's got an address in Ireland might get an invitation. And the invitation says, would you like to be part of this assembly? You would have to commit every weekend from April till December, maybe longer. It's up to the assembly to decide how long they need to come up with their final recommendations. And if you say yes, then they parse through everybody who said yes, and uh, they apply the, a demographic lens on it, like what would be the most representative group of 99 people looking at age and jobs and education and income and background and culture and people with disability, um, all of all of that, right? Make it as as representative as possible, 99 people. And they're volunteering their time. If they have to travel to these weekend events, that's covered. But, you know, lunch is provided. But, but they're, not, uh, they're not making money doing this. They are committed to being part of, of this conversation. And they have a set of rules they have to agree to that are all about being respectful, open-minded, and really paying attention, like really taking this seriously. And then the first weekend is educational. You know, if it's about drugs, it's what do you need to know in order to understand experts when it comes to drugs? It's every bit of information that might be a good orientation. And then after that, uh, the door has been open for anybody who thinks they should help inform this group of citizens as they weigh what should change and, and what should be left unchanged. And they provide testimonials, recommendations, expertise, insight. And, and the group of citizens also have the right to pick and choose which of those they want to use and how. And they also can request things. If, if they need some more insight they're not seeing offered, they can, they can be financed to, to, to bring in what they feel they need in order to make the decision. Because the final decision after all these weekends is not just we think you should – it's here's the cost, here's the timeline, here's the wording we recommend for the change to the Constitution. Like, they really get into it. This mix of 99 people. I think that would be amazing. As a way to a leapfrog past all the bottlenecks of how we're used to doing things and, and the traditions we're built upon in our, in our institutions, and really embrace democracy and demonstrate our trust in everybody and our dignity, culture, that we think everyone's opinion is equally valid and valued. That whole idea gives me, gives me goosebumps because it doesn't have to be a country that does it. it. It could be a community that chooses to do it. It could be Thunder Bay. Isn't that cool? I think it could be. Honest questions, open ears. Dream up solutions, speaking without fear. Conversations, open hearts. Build communities in which we have a part. <laughs> there you go. Those are my top picks of very feasible changes we could achieve in short order that I think would really help us move from our today to a kinder economy. And I feel like the, the unlocking of hands and of cash can be easily done and would make such a difference to our sense of autonomy and, and hope and also to the efficiency of our economy. You know, trusting people, listening to them, engaging in honest, respectful conversation and raising our expectations of one another and of our society, that's going to be good. It will be messy. You know, it will be messy. It'll challenge our habits and our plans. It'll, it'll trigger our emotions. But logically, honestly, it's so good. Messy, uncontrolled, unpredictable, but good. And if we relax and trust it, fun really positive so let me give you the whole song profit the children profit the land profit the justice you hold in your hand profit peace beauty and joy profit the children profit the land such capacity everywhere Trust a stranger, dare to play it fair. 
Drop defenses, open the gates. Welcome every hand before it's too late. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. Profit the children, profit the land, profit the justice you hold in your hand. Profit peace, beauty, and joy. Profit the children, profit the land. Own the gold, set the stage. Save the world takes more than a living wage. Expectations, raise them high. Build the future that calls you and I. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. Profit the children, profit the land. Profit the justice you hold in your hand. Profit peace, beauty, and joy. Profit the children, profit the land. Honest questions, open ears, dream up solutions, speak without fear. Conversations, open hearts, building communities of which we're a part. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. Don't make profit merely a monetary goal. And there you have it. Actually, one last thought. I I, I heard today Seth Klein um, has been working with David Suzuki, and they did a trial run of something they call the Youth Climate Action Corps in BC over the last year or so. And now they're pitching that the federal government fund such a thing across Canada. So respectfully funded and allowing the youth to identify where they want to make a difference and um, either pitch into projects already underway or create other projects that are addressing this climate crisis. I will include a link to that in the landing page as well because they have a, a really easy form filled out if you want to write a letter to everybody in the federal government who might have this on their table and be considering whether or not to support it. And also quite a bit of information about how it's gone so far and, and why they're excited about it. So I, I recommend checking, checking that out. So thank you for listening today. And I hope you come back next week. Something different, this way comes something Something different, something different Something different, this way comes something Something different, something different Good and messy.